I'm going to invite you to join me and open your copy of God's Word in the final chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13 this morning. If, uh, if the book of Nehemiah were brought to life on stage, let's say at the Sight and Sound Theater in Branson, uh, it could easily be um, presented in, in three acts. Act one would be titled Rebuild, and it would bring to life the remarkable account of the Jews under the leadership of, of Nehemiah building this enormous wall around the city of Jerusalem. They say that this wall was some two and a half feet in, in, or, in or excuse me, two and a half miles in length, 39 feet high with a, an average thickness of, of eight feet. And here's the most amazing part of, of that story, I think, is that it was completed in 52 days. That part of, of Nehemiah's story is a story of courage and teamwork and perseverance and certainly a story of exemplary leadership. Act 2, as the curtain would raise, it would, it would rise on scene 1 and the audience would see the city, the reenactment of the city being repopulated and and, and tens of thousands of, of people moving from the, uh, where they had been in the outlying villages now into the city proper of Jerusalem. And they would witness everybody taking on a, a different part in, their, in the temple worship and in the, uh, the, the business and, and protection of the city. And they would see everybody doing their part. They would... See in Act 2 and Scene 1 a revival that had taken place and was evidenced by a renewed desire for and a right response and regular obedience to the Word of God which is always a sign of real, genuine revival. They would also see how sin at that moment was properly dealt with as it was confronted and confessed and forsaken. As the curtain would lower at the end of Act 2, it would lower with Nehemiah writing off into the distance, back to Persia, back to his position as the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, which was part of the agreement of Nehemiah being able to go back to Jerusalem, was that he would return 
to his position in Persia. Nehemiah kept his word. The curtain would rise on the third and final act of Nehemiah's story, with Nehemiah now riding back into Jerusalem after a 12-year absence. And as Nehemiah rides back into the city that he loved with all of his heart and was reunited with the people that he loved with all of his heart, sadly he would find a spiritual environment totally different than what he would have hoped to have found. He would have discovered a spiritual environment that was so different than the one he had left 12 years ago. And so I think the title of this third act of the story of Nehemiah would be Renewed. Rebuild, revive, renew. I want to go back for just a a few moments here to the revival that the people of God experienced in the days of Nehemiah. Because God sent the rain, sure enough. I mean, God visited them and God did a wonderful work in the hearts of his people and this revival climaxed with Nehemiah and many others of those in the city signing a document and publicly stating their commitment to a life of of separation uh, unto God, a, a life of obedience to God and His Word, included in their commitment, in their statement, was a commitment to separation from that which was opposed to God. There was a commitment on the part of all of those who had experienced revival a commitment of financial support. This revival brought about a commitment regarding the keeping of the Sabbath. But much to the heartache and disappointment of Nehemiah, those who had made the commitment along with him were no longer committed. As for their commitment to separation, They had voluntarily separated themselves from the ungodly people around them and had united wholeheartedly with their Jewish brothers and sisters to obey the Lord and to walk in His ways. Look in your Bibles at verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, Nehemiah is now referencing back to, to that day some 12 years ago. When they opened the Word of God and they read there from the book of Moses and they found there that the Ammonite and the Moabite was not to to be a part of the congregation of Israel ever. 
and when they realized that and they discovered that, look at verse 3. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law, when they, when they were reminded or perhaps when they learned for the first time what God's word had to say and what God's will was, the Bible says at that point that they separated all of Israel or, or from all Israel the mixed multitude. So they had confronted their sin, they confessed their sin, and they had forsaken their sin. Sadly, upon his return, Nehemiah found that both Ammonites and Moabites were once again living among the people of God. To give you an idea of why this was such a, a big deal, you have to understand who Ammon and Moab were. Uh, they were born from the incestuous relationship or the incestuous union of Lot and two of his daughters in Genesis chapter 19. And their descendants were the avowed enemies of the Jews. The Moabites and the Ammonites were a heathen godless people. Not only did Nehemiah see Ammonites and Moabites living among God's people, but he also saw the inevitable consequence of that kind of ungodly union. They began marrying each other. Look at verse 23. In those days also saw I Jews that had married the wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. Listen, church, this is, this is just the opposite. Stay with me here. This is just the opposite of what they had promised to do. In Nehemiah 10, they had straight up said that they would not allow their children to marry someone who did not worship the God of heaven. But perhaps even worse, as though this marriage thing were not bad enough, Listen to this, there was an Ammonite living in the temple. Look at verse 4. And before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied. That word means that he was akin to, it literally means he was related to Tobiah. And he, Eliashib, had prepared for him, Tobiah, a great chamber where aforetime they had laid the meat offerings, the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of the corn, the new wine and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priest. So this, this area was once a dedicated, consecrated, very holy place where they, they kept the offerings that would supply the needs of, of those who did ministry in the temple. Drop down to verse 7. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Let me try and clarify what had happened here. Eliashib was the, was the high priest. He had been left by Nehemiah in charge of the main ministry operation of the entire temple. 
he, he was the, the main spiritual leader, maybe the lead pastor, if you will, in Jerusalem. And yet, listen, he had allowed an avowed enemy of God's people, an enemy of Nehemiah in particular. He had let him live in the temple. And kind of give you an idea of how, how great a desecration that was. That would be like erecting a, a statue of Hitler in the Holocaust Museum in Israel. And that would be like flying the, the Chinese flag over the White House. Those things don't belong. And Tobiah did not belong in the temple. You say, well, preacher, how did that happen? How could that possibly come to pass? And, and the most common belief is, is that Eliashib was related by marriage to a man named Sanballat. You find that in verse 28 at the end of chapter 13. Now, if you remember from our earlier study, our earlier look at the chapters of the book of Nehemiah, uh, you, you may remember the names Sanballat and Tobiah. They were, were closely allied. They were friends and co-enemies of, uh, of Nehemiah and of the Jews. You say, well, and I can't say that's exactly what happened but how it happened is really irrelevant. It happened, and it was not right, and it was a total contradiction to the commitment they had made to God. During the revival of chapter 10, the Jews not only committed themselves to separation, but they also committed themselves to supporting the work of God financially. And they even signed their name to it. Well, I'll go back and read the verses in chapter 10. I believe it starts like in verse 34, maybe goes through verse 39 or so. They committed to tithing the first tenth of everything to the Lord's house. And they even made this statement. You can read it at the end of verse 10. They said this, and we will not forsake the house of of our God. Yet here we are now, 12 years later, and that is exactly what they had done. Look at verse 10 of our text, and I perceived that the portion of the Levites had not been given them for the Levites, and the singers that did the work were fled, everyone to his field. Without the financial support of the, of the people of God, the ministry at the temple suffered. The Levites, who, who were the, the paid staff, if you will, had now scattered to the outlying villages to find work just to survive. And they had left the work of God. Are you tracking with me? So they had failed to keep their commitment to separate themselves from the ungodly around them. They had failed to keep their commitment of support financially to the Lord's work. And finally, they had failed to keep the Sabbath day holy as they promised they would do in verse 31 of chapter 10. Look, here's what they said. They said, if, if, if the people of the land, if they bring wear or, or any victuals or food, and they bring those things on the Sabbath day to sale. They said, we're not going to buy on the Sabbath day. 
we are not going to buy those things. We are going to commit ourselves to keeping the Sabbath day holy. That's what they said. But look what they're doing now 12 years later. Verse 15, in those days saw I and Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses as also wine, grapes, and figs and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil, what evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? So this is what Nehemiah came back to. And I, 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 I can't help but think, Pastor Tyler, that this is not what he envisioned. This is not what he would have expected from a group of people whose hearts had been revived, who had confronted their sin and confessed their sin and forsook their sin and stood with Nehemiah that day and in a public declaration of commitment to God, signed on a piece of paper, this is what we will do. Now you tend to look at this and question, well, how in the world could that happen? I mean, they made a public commitment. And I have no reason to doubt but that they were sincere when they did it. They were sincere when they said, listen, we now understand what God expects of us as far as separation and holiness, and we are going to commit ourselves, ours, our families, to lives of separation from that which is ungodly. I said, we, we know what God expects of us in terms of our giving to the work of the Lord, and we are committing ourselves to that, and, and we are committing ourselves publicly this day for the whole world to know that we are going to honor the Lord on His day. And now here they are, and they're not keeping even one of those commitments. How can that be? That's a fair question. And one we might be able to answer, listen now, by how this same thing often happens in our lives as believers. Sadly, we are not too far removed in many cases from what took place 2,500 years ago. Even now in the 21st century, God's people, I'm talking about us in this room this morning who named the name of Christ and have been born from above, sometimes we make commitments that we don't keep. At least three of us do. And sometimes those commitments are very Similar, if not exactly identical, to those made by Nehemiah and his friends. Those would include commitments to separation, 
Whether you're an adult during a revival or a teenager during youth camp, there are times when God uses His preached Word and through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit lays bare our heart and reveals our sin. And we come and we take a knee before God. And in all sincerity, we say, God, here's my sin. And and I'm confessing it to you. And God, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. And I'm committing right now this day to live a separated life, a godly life, a holy life unto you. Sometimes we commit ourselves to financially supporting the work of God through our faithful and consistent giving of our tithes and offerings, and we do it for a while. Until somehow we decide that it's okay to break that commitment. And so we do. How many times have God's people committed themselves to be faithful in both their presence and their participation in church. And they keep that commitment for a while. Until summer comes. Or until some pandemic comes. Or until they have something more important to do. (laughs) You see, we're not really that much different than the people in Nehemiah's day, are we? And the reason we are not that much different in what we do is because we're no different in what we fail to do. I believe what these Jews did was the result of what they failed to do. Let me share this this quote with you from William Booth, who was the head of the Salvation Army. And I want to share a few thoughts with you more about how to avoid this. To a group of new officers, he said this, I want you young men always to bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. With what time I have left, I want to share three things with you that you must do if you hope to keep the fires of commitment burning in your heart. First of all, you must be relentless in your guarding against sin. And the reason you must be relentless is because you have an enemy who is relentless. Watch this, Sanballat and Tobiah. Both the sworn enemies of God and his people never gave up trying to wreak havoc. And check this out. They Listen, they were willing to wait over a decade to weasel their way into position. And their relentless, relentlessness paid off. Because when Nehemiah came back 12 years later, Tobiah, who could never before make his way into Jerusalem, 
is now living not just in Jerusalem. He is living in a room in the temple. That only happened because they were relentless and the Jews were not. The people, including the high priest, stopped being relentless about their children, uh, about who their children married, and it created a spiritual void. But listen, it didn't stay a void. It just created a space where the enemy could compromise them through their relationships. Sanballat came along with his daughter, And before you know it, according to verse 8, the most authoritative religious figure in all of Israel. I'm talking about the high priest who was Eliashib at this time. Suddenly became aligned with God's enemy through marriage. The people stopped being relentless about their giving. And they created an extra empty space in the temple. But listen, it didn't stay an extra empty space. Tobias said, hey, what are those rooms over there for? And however it happened, it ended up with him moving all of his furniture in and making an apartment there. The people stopped being relentless about the Sabbath, but it didn't just stay a free open day, did it? What happened? Merchants and fishermen and weekend projects started to steal away their spiritual lives. Listen this morning, church. Here's the point. A spiritual void never stays a spiritual void. When you stop being relentless about areas of your spiritual life, it leaves an open space there, and it doesn't stay an open space. It doesn't stay empty. If you don't fill it, your enemy will because he's relentless. For example, if you're not relentless about living a life of holiness to God, there will inevitably be a space of separation between you and him. But the devil will not let that space remain empty. He is relentlessly, according to Peter, roaming to and fro like a lion, seeking opportunities to devour people who have become spiritually lazy. If you're not spending time with God in His Word and through the avenue of prayer, that void of time will not stay a void of time. Your enemy, my enemy, listen, he will make sure that there's something in our life to fill that void. And, and, and he will come in through things like the news and, and, and social media. He'll fill your life with fear and with anger. If you're not relentless in your giving, even through the summer months, you won't just have a pocket full of extra money accumulating. No, 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 no. Your enemy is relentless, and he'll convince you to weigh yourself down with another bill that you don't need. Or, or, hey, we've got some extra money here. Let's take a vacation that we can't afford. 
Or he'll just convince you of this, hey, times may get bad again. We better just start, we better just start saving, and we better just start hoarding, and we better just start laying up. And before long, you've got a stingy, stingy, stingy heart. If you're not relentless about your church life, oh listen, listen, you're gonna end up with more free time. But it won't stay free time. Your enemy will clutter that time up with things that have nothing to do at all with worship or spiritual learning. If you don't fill yourself with forgiveness, your enemy will fill you with bitterness. If you don't fill your life with joy, your enemy will fill it with depression. If you don't fill your life with contentment, he'll fill it with dissatisfaction. A spiritual void never stays a spiritual void. And so we must relentlessly guard against sin and its effects. Secondly, you must be tough in your dealing with sin. Listen to me, church. Look at me. You cannot get along with Tobiah. Tobiah is hell-bent against the things of God. You don't compromise with the Tobias in your life. You don't make room for Tobiah in your life. You don't make him comfortable in your life. You do what Nehemiah did. Well, preacher, what did he do? Well, look at it again, verse 7. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Verse 8, and it grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast forth all of the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. Hey, here's how you deal with the sinful Tobias in your life. You get tough and you kick him out. <laughs> I'm imagining a scene here not unlike a number of scenes in 14 years that I've rolled up on as I've answered calls at the, at the PD. And I've rolled up on scenes where there are just piles of clothes all over the yard. There's a pile of clothes over here, and there's a pile of clothes over there, and there's a hamper of clothes right here, and over there there's this, looks like a brand new flat screen TV. And over here there's a, there, there's a computer, it looks like a computer. <laughs> the remote to the TV's out there by the street, and the keyboard and the mouse and the monitor, they're, they're over there somewhere. And somebody looks and they say, wow, what in the world happened? I'll tell you what happened. Somebody got angry and they cast that stuff out. They said, I'm done with you. I am through with you. This is over. We no longer have a relationship. And they throw their junk out into the yard. Look at verse 8 again. When Nehemiah saw what Eliashib had done, Bible says he was grieved. That means he was angry. He was upset. 
He was ticked off. And he went to work <laughs> clearing out and cleaning up the house of God. Years ago, our oldest son, TJ, who at that moment in his life was not really making good decisions for Jesus. And he had gone off to Barber College in Wichita. And he was living in an apartment that was being paid for by his mother and myself. And I don't know, maybe three, four times when I would go to Wichita just to, just to check on him, just, just a gut hunch that said, hey, you need, to, you need to drive east a little bit and see what's going on. Without fail, I would take my key to that apartment, which I had because who was paying for it? I was. And I'd walk in there and there'd be, there'd be some yahoo in there, up to no good, and say, what are you doing here? He said, well, I live here. And I said, no, you don't. He said, well, who are you? And I said, I'm the dude that's paying for you to do what you do in here. You need to get out. And you know what I did? I went to old Nehemiah 13, 8 on them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Say, oh, but you're a preacher. Yeah, but I'm a daddy. And I was doing my best to protect my son from the sins of life. And I'm telling you, church, if you and I don't go Nehemiah 13, 8 on the sin in our life, it's going to cost us. Young people, listen to me. It's going to cost you. You're going to pay a price that you won't, don't want to pay. Is this making sense? If you want to keep your commitments to God, you cannot give sin one free minute in your life. No, 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 no. Listen, I'm talking about taking no prisoners. Listen to what Paul said about sin. He compares it to leaven or, or yeast in Galatians 5, 9. He said, a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. Leaving a, a little sin in your life is like leaving a little cancer in your body. Because a little cancer turns into a lot of cancer, and a lot of cancer turns into a funeral. Your funeral. I'm telling you, if you leave any room for sin in your life, it's going to cost you. According to James, something's going to die. I want you to notice something real quick. You still with me? Look at verse 11 real quick. Nehemiah contended with the rulers. Verse 17, Nehemiah contended with the nobles. Over here in verse 25, and I contended with them. That word contended does not mean that he sat down and said, now listen, fellas, something's not right here. And I'm going to give you a chance to explain yourself. And we're going we're gonna to have a kumbaya moment. And, and we're going we're, we're gonna, we're gonna to get right with Jesus. And no, no, that word contended there means that he took aggressive, decisive action against sin. 
Hey, what did Jesus say over there in the New Testament about your right hand? If it offends you or if it causes you to sin, what did he say to do? Tell me, church. He said, cut it off. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, he said, pluck it out. Now listen, we know that he's not, not condoning self-mutilation here. He's speaking metaphorically, but he's talking about how radical we must be about sin in our life. We've got to be willing to take radical steps. I encourage you to go back and listen to that message that Pastor Tyler preached on dealing with sin. And in that message, he talked about how radical we have to get. Like cancer, sin must be dealt with aggressively or it will extinguish the fire of commitment to God. So you must be relentless in your guarding against sin, and you must be tough in your dealing with sin. And finally, you must be severe in your condemnation of sin. Look at verse 7. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah. Look at verse 17. What evil thing is this that ye do? Look at verse 27. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil? Hey, hey, hey. Sin is nothing short of evil. It is an offense to a thrice holy God. Listen to me this morning. Quit calling it a mistake. Quit calling it a bad habit. See it for the evil that it is, condemn it severely, deal with it toughly, and guard against it relentlessly. Because if you don't, it will destroy you. Now let me ask you this morning. Where has sin gotten a foothold in your life and weakened your commitment to God? How about your life as a man, a husband, a father, maybe a grandfather? Fellas, listen. What are some commitments that you've made and you are not keeping? What about your life as a lady, a a wife, a mother, a grandmother? What are some commitments that you've made that you haven't kept? How about our, our lives as, as an adult in general? What are some commitments that you've made that you aren't keeping? Hey, teenagers in here this morning, your son, your daughter, what are some commitments that you made upstairs an impact or that you late made last summer at camp and that you are now failing to keep let's get a little more specific how about the three areas that we talked about in the lives of the jews how about the area of separation and holy living in your life today how you doing with that How about the people you have in your life? 
Are they contributing in a good way to your walk with God? How's your language? And that's something that has greatly concerned me of late. How about your language? How's your viewing habits? You've had a lot of time at home. A lot of free time that you've not normally been used to having. How have you filled that time? How about what you put in your body? How about just where you find yourself on the weekends? How about the area of financial responsibilities and commitments to God and His work? And the Bible's clear. It's clear, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. I'm not preaching a message on tithing this morning, but you ought to be doing it. And on top of that, you ought to be bringing an offering and speaking offerings. It saddens me that we did not get to have our 54th annual missions conference. But listen to me this morning. That is no excuse to quit giving to missions. People are still dying all over the world. And I hope that you are at least keeping your commitment from last year. How about the Lord's Day? How's your commitment to God's house? Now normally during this, this time of year, you would be, this being the summer and school's out, you would be challenged on, on only one front. But now we find God's people, you're being Challenged on a second front with an extended absence from in-person worship. Something that some people still have not returned to. So on the one hand, you're faced with the temptation to lay out a church on Sunday night and on Wednesday night. Because it's summer, and I've started this project, and I've got to get this project done. Or, or, or yeah, now it's summer, and the kids are playing ball, and we've got practice, and we got this, and we're whiny, 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 whiny. Well, we just decided we'd barbecue this Sunday night. Hey, preacher, what got into you? Nehemiah chapter 13, that's all. The Bible, God's Word. But not only do you have that now, listen, and I'm thankful you're here today, I'm preaching to the wrong people, but there may be some people watching today that need this. You've gotten comfortable being out of church. But it's time. Come on, it's time. Time for things to change. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, preacher, we're looking at a new normal. You show me a new normal in the Word of God where it's okay not to live holy. And it's okay not to give. And it's okay not to go to church. You show me that in the Word of God. No, 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 listen to me this morning. There is no new normal with God. 
And the sooner you accept that and you get back to the old normal of faithfulness and commitment and holy living, the better off you're going to be. Let's pray.